The Christian season of Advent begins next week, but you can almost taste it in our sermon this morning. We may not think of it this way, but the book of Judges is about as good as it gets for Advent worship. In those days, the people of God did what was right in their own eyes. For what? There was no king in Israel. If Judges does not kindle within you a desire for a king who will make all things right, once and for all, then perhaps no other book can. Oh, we've met a bunch of judges through our series so far. We've met Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah, Gideon, Tola, Jair, and Jephthah. In the rest of chapter 12, after the story of Jephthah, the writer of Judges simply tells us about three more judges, Ibsen, Elon, and Abdon. And that will be all we say about them. Finally, in chapter 13, we meet the last judge named in the book of Judges. There is more written about this final judge, Samson, than any of the others. In many ways, Samson is the climax of the book and the embodiment of Israel's spiritual condition. But while Samson provides a grim picture of Israel's sinful state, his life also provides a dim picture of God's saving grace. This story you see, while about Samson, is about one greater than Samson. This story is situated within a greater story. A story about God saving his people in the most hopeless of situations. We'll spend a few weeks on Samson's story. He's the best judge and he's the absolute worst judge. We'll learn something about the way God saves us. We'll learn something about the life of faith in the story of God, in which our lives and our stories find their meaning. This final cycle, right? Sin to cry for help, sin to a Verse one. But here we find the most hopeless situation yet. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. Again, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They are oppressed by the Philistines, their worst enemy yet, for 40 years, the longest span of oppression yet. But in this final cycle, one thing is missing. The people of God do not even cry out for help. Where we would normally see that cry for help, excuse my voice, there's two problems here that have come together to create a perfect storm. Problem one is my annual sinus infection. Problem two was coaching my first basketball game yesterday. So you put those problems together and then the preacher's got... <clears throat> In this final cycle, one thing is missing. The people of God do not even cry out for help. Instead, we're introduced to a family, a certain man of a certain tribe who had a wife with no child. 
This man, Manoah, and his family are caught up in something bigger from God. The second thing we'll see is a conversation. A conversation between a man, the angel of the Lord, and the man's wife. Oh, and the third thing we'll see is a prelude. A prelude to all that is to come. In this promise, this conversation, and this prelude, we learn that the one who begins to deliver Israel from Philistine oppression prefigures the one who will finish the job of deliverance. We will learn, if you're taking notes, that our role in this deliverance is simply to trust God, worship God, and obey God. Our role is to trust God, worship God, and obey God. There are sermons that are full of practical nuggets. There are sermons that are like really clear, like, okay, this is exactly what I need to go and do. And then there are sermons, I think, where we, where we see profoundly a vision of Jesus the Christ. So there might be some things worth taking notes in this sermon, maybe. But as I've prepared it and as I stand to preach it, I, I think the primary goal of this sermon is simply worship. That you would encounter Jesus in the text and that we all together would worship him. Let's see this promise in verses three through five. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Verse 3, behold, you are barren and have not born children. Seems redundant. It, of course, is redundant on purpose, emphasized for importance. We are here to feel a fundamental hopelessness. On a macro level, longest oppression yet, 40 years. Philistines, worst enemy yet. And on a micro level, that hopelessness is still there. The angel of the Lord appears to a woman who had been barren, who could not have a child. We are to feel here a fundamental hopelessness. Infertility in our day is a challenge for many couples. In a church this size, it will be a challenge for a few. It can be a profoundly painful topic. In the time of the judges, it was just the same. Except in those days, it carried with it more so than in our days, serious financial repercussions. The dishonor for a family who was barren was strong. So to a family who had lost hope, amidst a people who had lost hope, the angel of the Lord comes with a word of hope. You will conceive and bear a son. So here is what you must do. You will drink no wine or strong drink, and you'll eat nothing unclean while you're pregnant. For this child will be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. 
Now here it helps to know something about this idea of a Nazarite vow. It is something one may take to seek God's special provision during a really important time. The idea is that you're sort of becoming like a priest for a set period of time. Priests don't handle dead bodies, they don't drink strong drink, all these sorts of stipulations we see in the Levitical Code. And so any old person, male or female, could take a Nazarite vow for a set period of time to say, I am acting almost like a priest. I am dedicating myself to God wholeheartedly while I seek him through this season. The whole thing is spelled out in number six. It's a voluntary thing you do for a set period of time with three provisions. First, absence from strong wine, or from wine, strong drink, fruit of the vine. Second, you don't cut your hair. And third, you have no contact with the dead. Now, what's interesting for us is that Samson is being born to a woman who has begun to take this sort of vow. Samson, from his conception to his death, ideally, is set apart for the purpose of God. So while most people would take a Nazarite vow for a season, God has come to this woman. He said, begin acting like you're under this vow now, for the one you will bear will be a Nazarite to God. What is this purpose he's set apart for? He will begin to save Israel from the Philistines. That word begin might be the most important in the sermon. Because the book of Judges will end, a monarchy will begin in Israel, for there was no king in Israel. One day there will be a king in Israel. And when the kings are there, the Philistines are still going to be a problem. Samson's work of beginning to fight the Philistines will be picked up, in one sense, by the kings. But you know that having kings did not make Israel a more righteous people. You know that the kings of Israel didn't always do the things that they should do. You know that just because Israel had a king doesn't mean they obeyed the king. But the kings of Israel, <clears throat> like her judges, are imperfect instruments in the hands of the Almighty. Instruments who bring about deliverance and salvation. The kings, like the judges, are appointed by God. God will use a man named Samuel, for instance, to anoint the first two kings for his people. Perhaps you'll remember this. Samuel was born to Hannah, a woman who had herself been what? Barren. God is showing up to save his people in hopeless situations, but we must not be surprised because he's just keeping his promise a promise he made to Abraham and Sarah that through them would come a great nation. But there was one problem. Sarah was also what? Barren. Oh, God would finally raise up a prophet 
a prophet who would preach, prepare the way of the Lord. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. A man named John the Baptist who would be born to Elizabeth who was barren and well along in years. Oh, you see where this is going. Through the most hopeless situations, time and time again, God is bringing salvation from nothing. The promised son of Judges 13 points to the promised son of Luke chapter 2. One who will not be conceived by natural means to a barren woman in older age, but one who will be born of a virgin with no human father. Fully God and fully man, our great deliverer would come to keep the promise made, to pick up the job begun. And unlike Samson, he will fulfill everything spoken over him. Unlike Samson, he will not break his vows. The Lord's promise to this unnamed woman in the book of Judges, the work that he is beginning to do, will find its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. We read the Bible like Christians and not moralists. Samson tells us something about Jesus. But like Mary, this woman is very aware that her life will change very soon. This is a very human situation. And to the conversation with her husband, we now turn. In verses 6 through 20, we see this conversation between Manoah, his wife, and the angel of the Lord. I think here it's appropriate to use our sanctified imaginations a bit. This is a remarkable husband and wife conversation. An angel of the Lord comes to the woman with this great proclamation. You'll bear a son. He will be set apart to God to begin to drive out the Philistines. The husband, essentially, I'm not saying you're crazy, but this is a lot. There is Wife is not. But Manoah, when you read this narrative, he is kind of like the bumbling sitcom dad. He's like the middle-aged guy with some new balances that are four or five years old, you know. Nice guy, means well, but just kind of uh, not the sharpest, sharpest person there. And so Manoah is sort of honored and, and dignified to have his name in the text, but at every turn, he is seemingly confused. His wife is the one to whom the angel of the Lord speaks directly and the one he seems interested in dealing with. Manoah might be sort of a bumbling figure, but he's sympathetic, I think. I mean, the angel of the Lord is making these profound promises to his wife, and Manoah just wants to know what they mean. He wants some details. And as we'll see in a moment, he's willing to just cook everyone dinner. Let's see this conversation and what it may have to teach us about faith. He prays in verse 8, O Lord, Please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we're to do with the child who will be born. 
oh Lord, please let this messenger come back because we need more. We need more information about what we're supposed to do. Now, I, I think he prays in faith, but he wants specifics. Notice his prayer. Let who? The man of God whom you sent. He knows sort of who this is. He believes he comes from God. He believes that the child will be born, but he just needs some help understanding what that looks like. He has no idea how to raise a kid. He has no idea how to raise a hero. I mean, they hadn't even written taking care of babies yet. He doesn't know how to raise someone who's going to go drive out Philistines. And so God does answer his prayer in a way. In verse 9, God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to who? The woman, as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the angel of the Lord comes back, but not to Manoah. He comes to his wife again. So she runs, Manoah, Manoah, Manoah. He's back, he's back, he's back. So Manoah's like, oh, thank goodness. So he goes, went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, two questions. First, are you the man who told my woman this? Yes? Good, okay. I am. Now, I do want to notice, there is some, at the end of verse 11, that I am, he responds with some simple clarity that sounds a whole lot like God's self-revelation. They will soon realize that the I am is with them. The I am is speaking to them. I am. And Manoah said, now, when your words come true, again, let's give him props. When your words come true, not if your words come true, but when your words come true. What is to be the child's manner of life? And what is his mission? Manoah essentially says, okay, I've been thinking about this. A couple questions. First, are you the guy that came and told my wife this? Yeah, it's me. Okay. Second, what is this kid going to be like? What's his mission? What's he supposed to do? Is he going to need a uniform? Where should I take him to preschool? What neighborhood should we raise him in? Where is he going to go to college? How is he going to pay for it? Where is he going to work? Who is he going to marry? Where is he going to live? If Manoah is going to be about God's will for his life, he needs some answers. The angel of the Lord answers in verse 13. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Here is how he answers all of Manoah's very specific questions. Your wife just needs to obey me. Your wife knows what to do. Trust her and let her do it. This isn't in my notes, but it just hit me. Sometimes just saying, your wife knows what to do, let her do it, is a pretty good thing. Some of you are curious about God's will for your life. Honestly, you need not be. Here it is. Obey him. For this is the will of God, Paul tells us. Paul tells the Thessalonians. Your sanctification 
What are Samson's parents supposed to do? Believe the word of the Lord and obey him. One of the most impactful sermons I ever heard was while I was in college. And the idea stuck with me. And the, the main idea of the sermon was just this. The will of God is not a mystery. The will of God for your life is not a mystery. Some of us are approaching God like Manoah here. Where, what, how? Specific questions that are fundamentally about us. And I think the danger of asking those questions or framing our thinking about the will of God that way is that primarily the will of God is not about where we live, but about who we are. It's less about like what, who signs our paycheck and more about like how we treasure that paycheck, how we use that paycheck. It's less about like the type of person I become and more about like becoming like Jesus. The danger of thinking about the will of God in terms of like where, what, how, is that we could lose sight of the reality that the life of faith is first and foremost about intimacy with and worship of God. The life of faith is foundationally and most importantly about intimacy with God and the worship of God. What is God will for your life? that you would be with him, that you would know him in the power of his resurrection, that you would love him, that you would be in all of him. If this morning you're looking for God's will for your life, the best thing you can do is listen to the sermon, sing out in worship, and trust him before scheming up any plan. God's will for our lives are that we may worship him, obey him, and become like him in the process. And that's good news for restless hearts because you can do that in places you love and in places you hate. You can do that with jobs you like and jobs you don't like. You can do that in seasons that are dry and seasons that are plentiful. You can live for the will of God in every season because the will of God is about your worship and your obedience. We get a little picture of that even in this exchange. Manoah, after this awkward conversation, makes it even more awkward and invites an angel of the Lord to dinner. And he says, I'm not going to come and have dinner. Here's what you can do, however. You can offer a sacrifice to the Lord. So they do. Let's pick it up in verse 17. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching and they fell on their faces to the ground. They were in the presence of the one who works wonders. They were in the presence of the one whose name is wonderful. They fall to their faces in worship, brothers, sisters. 
we obey God when we are in awe of God. God's will for our lives is that we may know him and live in his presence, and as we do, that we would be transformed into his image. God does not answer all, really any, of Manoah's questions, but he does him one better. He shows him who he is. We often want God to be like uh, Waze or like Apple Maps, right, where we say, okay, here's the destination. Let me put in the destination. I want to be... Uh, successful fill-in-the-blank. And so we put in that destination, and we hit go, and it just calculates the route. And so if you're going to get to this, you need to go here and do this. And then you need to go here and do this. And then when you get to this turn, make sure you turn this way and go here. And then we get to the end, and we say, thank you, God, for being the best GPS imaginable. But God is not like Apple Maps, and God is not like Waze, and he's definitely not like Google Maps. Uh, God, God's got something better in store there. God doesn't want to just sort of say, okay, here's the destination, here's the instructions turn by turn to get you there. God wants to get in the car, kick you out of the driver's seat, put you in the back seat, get to know you, and take you there himself to a destination that he knows and you don't know. That the Christian life is not saying, God, get me what I want, but saying, God, it's yours. Take me where you will. And that the will of God is not about me finding out this hidden plan where, whereby I can become the best version of myself, but the will of God is about surrendering all of me to all of him. That my life might find its meaning in the broader story of God making all things new. That God's not just a GPS to my ends, but I am just in the back seat while he drives me wherever he'll have me. And that while we're on that journey together, I learn that he is great and wonderful and mighty and gentle and strong and kind and good and gracious. And there's no one like him. I legitimately might pass out if I don't get some more water. My head is killing me, man. We think we need God to tell us what to do in all these situations, but we just need to know who he is. And finally, the end of the introduction to Samson, a prelude to all that will be. Look with me in verse 21. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtal. This was the last time the angel of the Lord appeared to Manoah and his wife. 
Manoah, again, he like gets it right, but not really. He knows that they were in the presence of God and that this means they could die. This is a recurring theme in the scriptures. We've seen God will surely die, but his wife understands the message from God. If we were to die, we would be dead by now. Surely we will not die, for he accepted our offering. He's given us this call that we must obey. If the message of the angel is true, that presupposes them surviving. If he wanted us dead, he would have killed us by now. He accepted our offering. He's shown us his glory, and he has told us these wonderful things. And here, at the end of Samson's backstory, is the prelude to all that will become. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. Worship team, you guys can come on up. That language is picked up in the New Testament, right? And the woman bore a son and called his name Everything about this chapter, everything about this chapter tells us that Samson is special. Now, all the other judges have had moments where they were really emphasized and really important. They all point us to Jesus in some way. All the way back to the very beginning. Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar. The first real sermon of this series, we thought about how these judges point us to Jesus. Oh, imagine walking that Emmaus road with the risen Lord. One of my favorite passages of all the Bible that teaches us how to read the Bible. The scriptures say that Jesus is walking with a couple of guys and they don't know it was Jesus. The, scripture, the Lord had kept their eyes from understanding who it was. And beginning with Moses and the prophets, going all the way back to the beginning of the Bible and working his way through, Jesus explained how all of it points to him. And I just wonder what that judge's portion would have been like. Oh, this is how Gideon points to Jesus. This is how Othniel points to Jesus. We would finally maybe even learn how Shamgar points to Jesus, right? We would learn how all these people in this book point to Jesus. And then here we get to the last judge, the one who most embodies Israel in her wickedness, but power, in her chosenness, but her rebellion. And when we get to this judge, oh, his birth is announced by an angel. He is declared to be a vow that people take for a month, six months, a year at the most. And the Lord says to his mother, this vow will be upon him from the moment he's conceived until the moment he dies. He will be set apart for the purposes of God. The child is born and the text says that the Lord blessed him. Everything about this chapter tells us Samson is special. Here, in the muck and mire of life under the judges, before the monarchy of King David, the Lord God is giving us a glimpse of how his kingdom will come to earth. This final judge points to the final 
judge. Because another angel of the Lord will come to another woman with a promise. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Let's pray. Father, we stand and we sit on holy ground. I pray that more importantly than anything, this sermon shows us your greatness and your glory and your power and your love. That before we even send you had the plan of our salvation. Before we knew we needed a savior, you knew you would become one for us. I pray, Lord, that we would see the power of your word. We would see that your word is alive. And we would see that your word points us to the risen Lord, Jesus the Christ, who for us and our salvation came down from heaven, lived a perfect life, died a substitutionary death, and rose victoriously over sin, hell, and the grave. I pray, Lord, that even preaching from Judges 13, that we would see the glory of Jesus Christ set apart for your purpose and who lived up to every single bit of it. I pray if there would be any here who don't know you this morning, that they would come to know you, that they would see maybe from the first time how these promises in the Old Testament point to and are fulfilled in Jesus. And I pray for everyone here who's just struggling in their faith to leave in awe of you. Amen.